Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a urologist discusses vasectomies, the most effective birth control option for men. It is considered a permanent form of birth control. It is something that I specialize in reversing, but not everybody can have the vasectomy reversed. The medical director of physician well-being at MedStar Health talks about physician burnout, which he calls a growing public health crisis. It's almost like there is a price to pay for trying to see more patients and make it easier for patients to come in the door, and, and I think that's, that's tragic for a lot of docs. And two medical providers who recently traveled to Ecuador tell about their medical brigade. We brought a lot of insulin, diabetes medication, glucose testing machines, and we left enough for a year. All that plus the healing muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about physician burnout, what's causing it, and what can be done about it with the Medical Director of Physician Wellbeing at MedStar Health. Then, we'll hear about a medical brigade to Ecuador. But first, a urologist explains what you need to know about bisectomy. The most effective birth control option for men is a male sterilization procedure called bisectomy. Here to talk about this procedure is Dr. J.C. Trussell, an associate professor of urology at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Trussell. It's my pleasure. What does a man who is considering bisectomy need to think about? Uh, initially, I need to uh, recall that it is considered a permanent form of birth control. Uh, it is something that I specialize in reversing, but not everybody can have the vasectomy reversed. It's expensive when you're considering a reversal um, and is not covered by insurance. Uh, you should also consider taking a day or two off of work to, to recover with a little bit of uh, Tylenol and maybe some ice. And most importantly, that a vasectomy is not an immediate outcome. It does take some time uh, where you have to continue with birth control until there's a subsequent semen analysis showing no sperm in your ejaculation. Okay. How long does that take? Typically? That, that, uh, typically, well, I'll, I personally do a two-month follow-up with a semen analysis. Another guideline is to do 20 ejaculations, but I keep it simple by having men come back simply at two months uh, to check their first semen analysis. If there's more than one dead sperm uh, or any motile sperm, then we need to do additional semen analysis after that. So it's a, it's, they should consider this a permanent decision, that, that they won't be reversing later. They shouldn't go into this thinking, oh, I can just you know, get it reversed later because that might not work out. That is true. Um, and it's not immediate. Exactly right. So other than not wanting to have children or additional children, are there other reasons a man might need a vasectomy? Not typically. It's mostly, mostly meant for birth control okay. uh, uh, and family planning. Is there a minimum age for a vasectomy, or do you follow um, a, a guideline yourself on age? I am not aware of uh, a guideline for, for a minimum age. I have done vasectomies on, on men without a current partner who feel strongly that, that they have a reason for a vasectomy. Um, I will not do one if the guy's asking a lot about, well, should I freeze sperm? Because then I feel that they haven't... Uh, thought out the fact that it is permanent and they need to maybe spend more time thinking about this decision. If a man who seeks a vasectomy is married, um, does the wife have any say in this or does she, is she part of the discussion? That is not part of uh, our discussion. Uh, it's not part of our insurance form or, or uh, consent. So uh, an individual at this point can decide on their own to have a vasectomy. So this is a decision between the man and his physician, basically. That's correct. However, okay. having said that, it's more often that his partner, the man's partner, is encouraging them to come and visit us. So I would say most of the time it is a, a joint decision by the, the male and his partner. Do you see a surge in request for surgery at any particular times of the year? Yes, March Madness. I see a lot of guys 
coming in wanting a vasectomy where they can uh, take that couple day rest uh, with, with basketball season and, and full tilt. Uh, the key for that would be not to wait until March Madness comes because it does require a visit, uh, a consultation, and obviously scheduling the, the procedure. So don't put it off until right then, but maybe plan ahead a little bit. That's exactly right. Okay. Well, let's talk about what patients can expect at their first appointment. Um, Once they do set that up with you, um, is there anything they need to do ahead of that appointment, or what do you expect them to come to the appointment with? They aren't required to come to the appointment with with any, any particular material. They do need to uh, have thought about the permanency of, of the vasectomy, uh, that it shouldn't be considered reversible. We'll do a physical exam uh, to make sure everything is anatomically normal uh, and uh, ask the client if they would want to have the procedure done under local anesthesia where 80% of men will choose that versus uh, 20% of men will choose to have uh, conscious sedation or an anesthetic for, for the vasectomy. So, what would tell me the differences between those? What would a local? How would it feel like if you had a local anesthesia? Uh, great question. I would numb the skin uh, in the middle of the scrotum with lidocaine, like the dentist would use to numb a tooth. Let that set up for uh, a bit of time, and then perform that procedure through that single uh, opening that is made. General anesthesia or, or conscious sedation is when you have something by vein uh, to, to have you sleep through the procedure. The latter, the conscious sedation, would require you to have a driver to take you home. You can with okay. local, however, uh, you're awake through the entire procedure. We're talking. Um, you're telling me if you're feeling fine. And then afterwards, uh, go home uh, by driving yourself. Okay, interesting. Now, um, are there any men who are not candidates for a vasectomy? You said there's a physical exam ahead of time. Like, what are you looking for? Is there something that would rule out the operation for a man? I would say that um, if somebody has a, a, a unique sensitivity to, to their physical exam, I would not recommend a local anesthesia because it does take um, about 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, if they're uncomfortable with a, a, a simple exam, I would want them maybe to be uh, choosing the conscious sedation approach. Okay. If somebody has an undescended testicle, uh, that's quite challenging because you can't really do a vasectomy um, when the testicle is not in the scrotum. So if there's some anatomical aberrations or variants that make doing a bilateral vasectomy impossible, that's not the best choice for this client. Okay. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. J.C. Trussell, an associate professor of urology at Upstate, and our topic is what to know about vasectomy. So we've talked about the anesthesia options. How is the procedure done itself? Excellent question. So you lay uh, flat with your back down on a table, um, put some uh, chili soap on on the area and drape off that area with a couple paper drapes, and uh, subsequently numb the area with lidocaine um, or or you have the general anesthesia as previously discussed. And I make a very small opening in the middle of the scrotum. I do a, what's, what I would call a minimally invasive uh, vasectomy where I make a tiny um, quarter inch, half inch opening and uh, after it's numb, of course, bring each vas tube, which is about the size of a spaghetti noodle. The vas tube is what allows the sperm to exit from the testicle into the ejaculation. So we divide that tube First on one side, putting some clips on each remaining portion of that tube once a little segment is removed, allowing that tube to go back into its normal position, doing the exact same thing through that single opening to the other side, and then closing the opening with absorbable suture, meaning that stitch absorbs on its own and does not need any any further care or treatment. So uh, will there be a scar afterward? A very small quarter-inch scar that uh, when I'm... uh, Checking the guy two months later for their semen analysis, I, I most often can't even find it. What if, Can you feel the clips? Can the patient feel the clips afterward or that are they, left inside? Yes, there are tiny, tiny little clips, which uh, uh, interestingly will not set off any metal detectors at the airport or, or anywhere else. Um, they are very small and uh, are hard to discern, even for myself as a surgeon, feeling for them on, on a patient. 
Well, what is recovery like right after the surgery? Typically, you go home afterward, right? Yeah, you go home almost immediately uh, with a local. If you do the general anesthesia, uh, you need a driver and you need to recover from that. You need to wake up. Then I just have the client avoid aspirin for three days and ice the area uh, and rest for 24, maybe 48 hours if they have a vigorous job. Okay. Now, how does bisectomy affect sexual drive and performance? That is not affected at all. That will not be changed. Uh, there'll be no changes in erections, no changes in libido or sexual energy. Uh, the internet is filled with some older studies that were not found to be true. They're, if, if clients are looking, they might see a concern about higher risks of cancers, like cancer of the testicle or the prostate. That's not happening. There's no higher risk of heart disease. There's no higher risk of high blood pressure or dementia. Uh, none of those things have been found to be uh, true in, in large studies that have been well done in, in the more recent years. Well, let's talk about the, the safety of bisectomy. Are there complications that could happen? Sure. They're, they're very, very small. One to two percent of clients may have a, a hematoma or a blood collection or some minor pain. Uh, the more serious complication that luckily is extremely rare is failure, where there could be future fertility. The rate for that is 1 in 2,000 vasectomies, and we minimize that uh, as minimal as we can by doing two things. One is having the client not ejaculate for the first week after the vasectomy. That allows the tissues to all heal in and to seal up even better. Um, we have them use birth control until we tell them, and find on a semen analysis there's no sperm at all on a future uh, ejaculation. Okay. Let me ask you this. How often do men who had a vasectomy change their mind and come to you for help doing a reversal? Does that happen often? That, that does happen. I don't know how often it is, but the most common uh, reasons would be a, uh, a change in partner, a different partner, um, uh, unfortunately, there can be a, a loss of a child uh, that, that occurs within a family unit, and those are the two main main reasons. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there are two options for using your own genetic material, your own sperm, from creating another child. One is to do the vas reversal, uh, as described earlier, a vasovasostomy, it's called. The other is to uh, aspirate sperm from the testicle, uh, going through the scrotal skin, and retrieving eggs from the female partner and doing what's called ICSI uh, or intracytoplasmic sperm injection, often called in vitro fertilization. So there's two ways okay. to make a baby going forward. So there are some options. There are definitely options. Um, talk to me about the surgery to reverse a vasectomy, though. Is, it, is that complicated? Is it done just like you described it's done, but in reverse where you go and remove the clips? It is quite a bit more complicated. You need to use microsurgical instruments. For this, you do need to be asleep. It takes anywhere from an hour and a half to two and a half hours where you um, expose the, the, ips, the tips of that spaghetti noodle that have been previously clipped, that spaghetti noodle called the vasectomy, the vas, and remove the clips and subsequently sew those uh, two edges back together using sutures that are smaller than, than hair on your head that, that you can, can't even really see without using the microscope. That does require a, a four-week time of no ejaculation, does require a longer healing time, usually uh, three to seven days instead of 24 to 48 hours. And I'm guessing it's not covered by insurance either? That occasionally or rarely is covered by insurance, but usually it's a fairly expensive uh, process. Okay. Is there any way um, to predict ahead of time how successful that's going to be? There are guidelines that, that I discuss with the client or the family to determine if they should do the vas reversal surgery or the, the needle aspiration uh, into the testicle. And the guidelines are generally... Uh, to do surgery if the vasectomy is within 10 years, if the female partner is younger than 35, or if they want one or more children. The opposite would be true for the needle or the aspiration of sperm. If the vasectomy is m older than 10 to 15 years, if the female partner is older than 35, or if they only want one child, then it tends to be more cost-effective to do the aspiration. Okay. Are there any other types of long-term reversible male contraception in development that you're aware of? 
for years, there's been a lot of work on medications, uh, more hormonal medications. They are able to get the sperm count down fairly low, close to zero, but not, not zero. And they're statistically happy because the birth rate is, is less than the failure rate from a vasectomy, but they have side effects um, usually of low testosterone. So they try to wipe out the testosterone and guys are usually not happy with, with the feeling of low testosterone. There's always the effort of a reversible mechanical device that gets implanted, but they haven't been able to work out um, a product that, that does not erode or push through the sidewall of that vas tube, the spaghetti noodle tube that I talked about. Well, this has been very informative. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. J.C. Trussell, an associate professor of urology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what's causing record numbers of physicians to burn out? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. My guest today has called the rate of physician burnout in America a public health crisis. Dr. Dan Marshalik from Georgetown University School of Medicine is a urologist in Washington, D.C. and the medical director of physician well-being at MedStar Health. He's at Upstate to give a presentation on physician burnout, and we're grateful that he made time to stop into HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Dr. Marshalik. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you wrote in the Washington Post recently about a colleague who accepted a dream job only to grapple with burnout shortly thereafter. Can you tell us about her? Yeah. Um, so she's a good friend, and she took this job that she really wanted, and she was in a, a city that she wanted to be in, and it was she was getting to concentrate on exactly what she wanted to do. But what she started to realize um, pretty quickly is that that's not really what the job was. Um, a lot of it... A lot of what she wanted to do with the research and the patient interactions actually ended up being uh, late nights working on her electronic health record, trying to close um, all the charts that were left open because there's just not enough time to do both charting and seeing patients. Um, she didn't really have control over what types of patients she was seeing. And uh, I think it was it started to become something different than what she envisioned. And, and that, that led to her having a lot of stress. So I can imagine that might happen to a lot of physicians who enter medical school with the idea that they want to help people and take care of patients, only to realize afterward that a huge part of it is, I don't know, the paperwork. Exactly, yeah. I think if you asked um, 100 medical students, very few of them would say that they went to med school to be really good at typing or to spend a lot of time in front of the computer monitor or to become very proficient billers. But in a lot of ways, that's what the job description ends up being for a lot of doctors, especially those who spend a lot of time one-on-one with patients, busy clinics, uh, seeing clinics every day. It's almost like there is a price to pay for trying to see more patients and make it easier for patients to come in the door. And, and I think that's, that's tragic for a lot of docs. So is that the beginning of physician burnout, or, or what causes physician burnout versus job dissatisfaction? Yeah. It's a really good question and, and, and um, kind of a complicated one because I think there are a lot of different factors that, that, that combine to cause burnout. Now, burnout specifically um, is really an occupational uh, job distress, so something that an uh, occupational distress syndrome, so something that happens because of work. It's not the same as saying somebody is, for example, depressed, which is a clinical diagnosis. Burnout's not a clinical diagnosis. Um, But uh, this syndrome really describes a couple of different things. Uh, There's three domains to it, which is how we tend to define it. So the first is what's called emotional exhaustion. 
which is this feeling that, you know, I just can't do this anymore. The second is this uh, feeling of depersonalization or callousness, which is a feeling of not caring about what happens to your colleagues or your patients. And the last is the loss of personal accomplishment, which is the feeling that even if I wanted to do something to make things better, I just don't think I could. Okay. And, and, and so those things are, are, are how we define burnout. Now, what causes it is kind of complicated. We know that the EMRs made things more difficult for doctors. And EMR is the electronic, electronic medical, medical record. That's right. Electronic health record to be, okay. to be exact, EHR. And, and we know that uh, the loss of control that a lot of doctors are feeling is linked to it as well. This, this, this feeling that they can't practice the type of practice that they want or they're kind of bound by requirements around billing and things like this. Um, but then we also know that the work hours can be a big stressor for the residents and for a lot of uh, attending physicians. So there are a multitude of things. So we know that um, the medical profession is demanding and high stress. Everybody knows that before they get into it. But this is more than that. This goes beyond that, right? It does. It really does. Um, I think that the way to think about uh, burnout is that it's, it's probably on a continuum. And burnout itself is likely on a continuum, too. There are people who are slightly burnt out and then people who are very burnt out. And those experiences are probably quite different. But uh, it, I think it has to do with more than just stress, because if that were the case, then I think every doctor would feel the exact same way, but they don't. We know that even when you um, look at two doctors, let's say two primary care doctors um, in two different hospitals, um, that might, and the doctors might be the same age, same gender, um, same family structure, one will have burnout and the other one will not. And the question is, what is it that might be driving some of that? And I think a lot of it, as what we're, at least what we're finding, is a lot of it has to do with the work environment. So you have said that you consider this a public health crisis. So how do, how do you make that yeah. leap? I, and, 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 and I see how that comes off as, as being strong language, but if you look at what the implications of burnout are it it starts to kind of come into focus so if you look at a physician that meets the criteria for burnout who screens positive for burnout on on our surveys those physicians have nearly twice the rate or the risk of suicide and when you think about the fact that doctors already have one of the highest rates of suicide of any profession those numbers are startling we lose 400 physicians a year to suicide that's three medical school classes that are graduating every year just to replenish the workforce that is lost wow. from suicide. Right? Well, I think the estimate is something like a million patients lose their doctor to suicide a year. Right? Doctors who meet the criteria for uh, burnout are also two times more likely to commit a medical error. So those repercussions for patients are also devastating they are two and a half times more likely to cut down on their clinical effort, meaning instead of being a full-time doctor, they'll become a part-time doctor, which makes it more difficult for patients to come in to see their doctors. So it really is a public health issue because it affects doctors, it affects their patients, it affects entire hospital systems. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I think everyone is different, right? I think for some people, it's just this feeling bottled up inside. And and a lot of it just comes from a feeling that they want to help patients, right? I want to make that really clear. I think for a lot of doctors, the problem is the disconnect. What they want to do is spend more time with their patients one-on-one to be able to kind of deal with patients and help guide them through their issues and concerns. But a, a lot of things can get in the way and can make that job a lot more difficult. Um, The way that I would think about it is, I think a lot of doctors just wish that they could practice at the top of their license. And I think a lot of patients wish that their doctors could practice at the top of their license and do doctor things instead of all the other things that a lot of times get in the way. And I think those, those issues are happening to doctors, right? But as a result, they're also happening to patients. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Dan Marshalik. He's a urologist from Georgetown University School of Medicine and the medical director of physician well-being at MedStar Health, and we're discussing physician burnout. Can you project which doctors are likely to suffer burnout? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I, that is to say, 
it's hard to say specifically when somebody enters practice, is this doctor going to be the, somebody who will or will not be burned out? In fact, what we end up seeing is um, when you look at graduating seniors who are about to enter medical school, they actually have lower rates of burnout than other graduating seniors. But something changes once they start going through the whole medical education system and training, and those trends are reversed. We do know that some specialties are higher risk. Um, generally speaking, it appears that specialties at the front lines of care, so primary care, emergency medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, those doctors are at a higher risk for developing burnout when you look at a cross-section of just all specialties and all doctors. Mm, okay. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the, the, the stresses and demands of both the electronic health record and coordinating care and a lot of barriers to it. Um, I think a lot of doctors will say things like, you know, I spent 20 minutes trying to send a fax and I had a patient waiting in the waiting room and it was really stressing me out. And those types of things tend to kind of pile up. Why do surgeons seem shielded from some of the stress of modern medicine? Yeah, I, I think that uh, at least that's my hypothesis. I, I don't have a clear answer for it, but I can tell you as a surgeon myself, um, when I'm in the operating room, I'm truly working at the top of my license. Like That is my protected space. All I'm doing is doing exactly what I love doing. I'm operating, I'm getting to really, uh, I'm helping somebody and I, and I get to feel that. Um, and during that time, I don't have those some of those same barriers that we talk about, like I don't have um, notes piling up that I need to finish when I get home during dinner. I don't have to battle with the fax machine to get it to finally receive the old records from patients that may not have had their records with them. And so uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really purely medicine that I get to practice. And I think a lot of other surgeons feel the same way. Tell us about a study you did of urology trainees. Yeah, we did. Uh, we actually did a couple of studies on urology trainees, and we looked at uh, what factors tended to be most closely associated with burnout. Whether there were personal factors like uh, gender and age, and personal um, resilience methods like meditation and yoga and reading, uh, or whether there were institutional factors like having mentorship programs or what type of work hours they had or access to mental health services if they needed them. And we did that study in the U.S., but then we also did a similar study in Europe as well. And what we found is, is pretty interesting. Um, number one is uh, the biggest predictors of, of or in the biggest associations with burnout tended to be institutional factors. So did you have a good mentorship program where you were? Like, did you have, uh, basically, what kind of environment were you training in? Were you likely to violate the work hour restrictions? Did you have good access to mental health where you were? Um, but then we also found that of all the personal resilience factors, the one that was most associated, actually the only one that was truly significant in being associated with um, decreasing your odds of burnout was reading for relaxation, reading fiction. Really? Something about books is making people um, less likely to burn out. Now, what's interesting is we saw that in Europe as well. Hmm. And then we also did a similar study on palliative care providers. And this was all providers. So resident, I mean, faculty and fellows and chaplains and pharmacists and social workers. And what we saw is reading for relaxation. Um, tended to be protective against burnout in their population as well. So there's something there, and I, and I find it to be very, very compelling myself because for me, reading is actually, I, I think, a big, um, a big kind of way of escaping and, and resetting. Wow, and to find that it actually makes a difference. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, do you have any suggestions for how to reduce the rate of burnout? It's give everyone a, a book? No, of course. I mean, I think that some people innately, for them, reading tends to be a, a form of relaxation that works well. I, but I don't, I, I want to make a really big point here. I don't think that it's on the doctors to figure out how to kind of treat themselves out of this issue. It's truly not. I think it's on the healthcare system to figure out how to make an environment where doctors can thrive. 
And I, and I, I think that point is important. I don't think it's because the doctors are just not resilient enough or they don't meditate enough or they don't read enough books. That's, that's not the issue here. The issue is that it's just so hard for doctors to, to do medicine. And, and I think that that really piles up because they want to help patients, but it's just so difficult to do that in, in the environment. And so things that we can do to help are, um, for example, in training programs, let's create mentorship programs. Let's figure out ways to support documentation, like whether it's through scribes or better uh, assistance or uh, whether it's creating an electronic health record that is more intuitive. Right. Uh, I think those are the things that are going to make a difference. I mean, to give you an example, when I type in Tylenol into my electronic health record, I get a menu of 120 different types of Tylenols and different pediatric doses. And I'm not a pediatric urologist. Now, when I log on to my Amazon account, it probably already knows everything that I want to order. It's already waiting outside my door. And it can right? anticipate what you need exactly. after. It yeah. can. And it, and it knows to suggest in a month that you just ran out of paper towels. right? So I think the question is, why are these other, organi- why are these other industries like Amazons and Googles, why are they so good at being able to be um, daily assistance and why is the electronic health record not right so it, it's working with organizations it's lobbying for us for physicians to make it easier to document without all the requirements that can sometimes not be necessary it's working with electronic health records to basically create an environment where everybody can thrive both doctors and patients oh, good points well thank you so much for being here my guest has been urologist Dan Marshalik from Georgetown University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and he's also the medical director of physician well-being at MedStar Health. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Coming up next, two medical providers tell us about the care they provided in Ecuador. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Barbara Feuerstein is just back from Ecuador, where she and a team of students were part of a medical brigade. She's here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio, along with medical student Moje Amarawan. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for asking us. Dr. Feuerstein is an associate professor of medicine at Upstate, and she specializes in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. Moje is a second-year medical student, and the trip they were part of was sponsored by the Upstate Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. So how did each of you become involved in this initiative? Moje? So actually, a classmate of mine, Gavin, um, introduced the, uh, the idea to us throughout the course of, the, of last year. And um, he talked about it a couple of times, and it was something that I kept in the back of my mind. And then there was an interest meeting uh, toward the end of the year that we went to. And uh, yeah, the, at that point, it became something that I was really interested in, in uh, being a part of. How many students came with you, Dr. Feuerstein? So we had three first-year rising second-year students, and we had a PA student from Lemoyne, we had an MPH student from Upstate, and we had a student from Colorado yeah. who is doing work on how to help decrease mosquito-borne illnesses. Wow. So kind of a big group. Yeah. And where did you, where did you go in Ecuador? So I became involved um, actually two years ago because I read about it in an upstate newsletter and I saw that there was, had been an earthquake in 2016 and a young woman, Avril Diaz, had started an NGO 
after the earthquake with a couple of other people where she wanted to help in the recovery program to help the people in Bahia de Caracas. What does NGO stand for? Non-governmental organization. Okay, non-profit. so a non-profit, it's a non-profit that yeah. helps. So um, I was happy to go on an upstate sponsor program because I thought that it would be something that was sustainable because Groups go back there frequently from throughout the country. And actually, there have been several groups, several brigades that have gone from upstate in the past three years. So it's not just a one-shot trip. Exactly. It's a sustained effort. Exactly. So tell me how you went about preparing for the trip. Um, I'm sure you had to pack certain things, right? How did, how did you get ready so for it? So my main goal was to be able to educate the people there so that when we left, we felt like we had done something that was going to leave a good impact right. on the area. So we tried to get as much educational materials that we could in Spanish. And since I'm an endocrinologist, I was focusing on diabetes. Moje happened to be working this summer at the Joslin Center, which was a perfect match for me because one day I asked him to translate a bunch of the diabetes material that we use daily at the Joslin Center, and he was able to do that, and we brought a lot of those materials as well. Um, We were able to get donations from a lot of places. We brought a lot of insulin, diabetes medication, glucose testing machines, and we left enough medication, especially the insulin, for a year. Wow. So we feel really good about that. So you both were confident with your Spanish speaking, or did did you need I, to have that skill? Yeah, so I actually took medical Spanish uh, the fall semester and the spring semester of last year, and um, it you wasn't put enough. it to I, use. Yeah, I put it. I definitely put it to use, but I also would supplement with apps and uh, you know things like that to prepare for the trip. So, and the people who run Walking Palms in Bahia have a group of students, high school students, who were our translators. So there were six women, young women, and three men who were with us all week, who we fell in love with, who did an outstanding job, and they were there with us by our sides the entire week. And so Walking Palms is the NGO, the Disaster Relief So Walking Palms was started after the earthquake by Avril Diaz and a few other people. And she has gone back and forth to run it, even though she was in New York City getting a master's degree last year. She still has programs running all year through teaching the locals how to continue when she's not there. So what sorts of evidence did you see of earthquake damage or recovery? Because you're there to a little more than two years after the earthquake, right? Mm-hmm. So I was there after a year after the earthquake in 2017, and then I went back two years later this summer. And in 2017, it looked much more like a mess in the main streets. There was still garbage. It was still a lot of upheaval. The beach was a mess. You... I didn't even want to go on the beach. Uh, Now it looks like the main streets, the beach, are really cleaned up. But when you go to where the people are living, which we did, we made house calls, Mm -hmm. and we actually went to where the locals live, it's still in very bad shape. The people are still living in tents that are like tarps. They're still living in tin can-type enclosures. There's no glass in the windows, nothing in the doors. The mosquitoes can come and go as they please. Um, They have no running water, very little to no electricity. Yeah, there were a lot of buildings that were still, uh, you could tell, were um, had very clear evidence of being damaged by the earthquake. Um, But apart from like physical evidence, there was a lot of, uh, you know, patients who had anxiety and had trouble sleeping um, and had depression as well. And, um, you know, I talked to a couple of them and, and asked, hey, when did this start? And they said, you know, ever since the earthquake, I've had trouble sleeping. Or, you know, I, I've been really anxious for the past couple of years, and I just don't really know why. So apart from physical evidence, there's a lot of very clear health reasons. As well. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Barbara Feuerstein and medical student Moje Amarowan. They're just back from a medical brigade that they took to Ecuador. 
And uh, I was going to ask, um, now that it's not really a disaster relief that's being provided, what does the clinic offer to these these people, the people that live there? Um, you got into some of it. Is, is it um, PTSD and things of that nature? Yeah, so, global, uh, so Walking Problems Global Health is an organization that um, – they use a like an intertwined approach of education, research, and medicine, um, sort of an interdisciplinary approach to kind of help communities heal. So they offer quite a few different programs, and mental health is definitely one of the things that they offer. Um, they also offer like women's health, um, uh, disease prevention, and how to and how to like protect yourself against like mosquitoes and and uh, nutritional advice, that kind of thing. So. Uh, the organization is very active in making sure that the communities um, have the right information. And so that's just some of the ways that they, they are attempting to heal that community. Do you have any memorable patients you can tell us about? Yeah, definitely. So one of the patients, uh, his name was Alex, and he, he, was, uh, he, he had diabetes. And he was actually wheelchair-bound because of he had um, edema in his, uh, in his left leg. And, and he had arterial was, insufficiency, yeah. so he was in constant pain in his yep. foot and couldn't walk. Yeah. So that's swelling? That was, swelling. Uh, yeah, yeah. He had okay. you know, really bad swelling in his left leg, so he was uh, in a wheelchair, and his one, his right leg had a shoe on it, and his left leg didn't because the, um, it, it hurt to have anything against, sure. the, against his foot. Um, so when we first got there and we talked to him, his, I think, blood sugar was, you know, above 400. Which uh, is way high. Which is really high, yes. So he was one of the patients that we kept going to see um, almost every day, I think. Every day we went to his house to talk to him and to, to see how he was doing. And I think uh, we, we ended up treating him with uh, insulin. Um, and his blood sugar was, was it, was it roughly we half? We got it down to 200. Yeah, we got it down to about half by the time we were wow. about to leave. Um, so a funny story, I think... Uh, one night, me and Gavin went over, and we went to his house, and uh, he was laying in his bed, and his bed is right by the window, and we didn't want to have to make him, you know, get up and get in his wheelchair and kind of open the door for us, so we wanted to check his blood sugar, and Gavin had him stick his hand out his out window, window. <laughs> and yeah, we took his blood sugar through the window of his house, uh, so that's definitely a memorable story. Most wow. of the time when we visited him, he was sitting in his wheelchair on the sidewalk. Yeah. He spent pretty much most of the day on the sidewalk, yeah. and the way he would eat a meal would be if somebody he knew happened to walk by that day, and he'd ask them to stop going to his house and get him something to eat. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you made house calls, it sounds like. You weren't just in a clinic building. You were out in the community, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I made another house call with Avriel one night up to the top of one of the hills where a woman was in a tin can type house with, she has nine children, and it was one room, no running water or electricity. Her uh, diabetes was really poorly controlled, and she couldn't see, she couldn't walk. And we went with a diabetes nurse who's going to go check on her periodically, and we gave her enough insulin for a few months. Wow. And also a new glucose meter. So we're hoping that her vision will get better uh, with the insulin treatment. When I was there two years ago, the people were very impressed with the power of insulin because we saw a woman in another house call who hadn't been able to see for two years. And when we started on insulin, they sent me an email because after I go back home, they send me emails with the blood sugars so I can adjust the insulin by email. And they told me after a few months of using the insulin, she could see again. Wow. So that was really powerful for all the people down there to see that the medication really made a huge difference for her. Is diabetes the same disease in Ecuador as it is in the U.S.? Uh, type 2 diabetes is what we mostly saw there because I think there's so little insulin available to people that people who have type 1 diabetes do not survive. Huh. Diabetes is really underreported in Ecuador because a lot of the people have no health care because they can't afford it. There's still no hospital since the earthquake for people who can't pay. Only people who can pay can go to the hospital. So it is underreported, but 
it's still related to obesity and lifestyle and diet. So that's why we try to educate them to eat less chips, not drink the soda, not drink juice all day. The people there drink a lot of juice and they think since there's no sugar added to it, it's okay. But we try to educate them that even though there's no sugar added to it, it's still, it's still pure fruit sugar, which will still raise their blood sugar right away. So education hopefully can make an impact. That's what we pray for. Right. Well, tell me about the trip. Where did you stay when you got to Ecuador? So we stayed in uh, a, a place called Las Brisas, which is uh, pretty close to the water, right about right about on, on the beach. Um, it was a it's a really it's a really nice place, I think. Because this uh, was a, a the earthquake was coastal, yeah. right? So um, how close to the epicenter of the earthquake were you working? Uh, I think we were at least maybe an hour or so from from the epicenter. But this house that we stayed in was still standing. The two houses on either side were crushed. Wow. So it's just a matter of that this house was more solid when it was built. So you were in the area that was impacted. And when you hear beach, don't think of tropical beach like, you know, Hawaii. This is a beach where there's no tourists. I didn't hear any language other than Spanish the entire time. Uh, the beach is pretty um, run down. Is it, still... is it a sandy beach or a rocky beach? Or... Some of it is, yeah. but there's a lot of um, debris from the houses and the buildings right. along the beach. Yeah, a lot of wood, a lot of rocks. Uh, there was sand, but okay. yeah, we could tell there's still evidence of, uh, of damage there. What, was your, what were your days like and what did you eat? Oh, uh, well, the food there was actually really good. Um, we had a, uh, a local uh, woman named uh, Marianne who would come and prepare meals for us. And uh, the food there was just, it was, it, she, was, she was really good at, uh, at making the meals for us, I think. I think all of us were just like blown away every day. by. So like, she would she start, would... she would make breakfast for you in the morning? So breakfast we would sort of prepare like ourselves. Uh, um, uh, one of the people who was with us, uh, his name was Blas, he would go out into the market and he would get, you know, uh, fruit and granola and that kind of thing. And that oh. would be our breakfast. And then uh, Marianne would make lunch and dinner for us. I think I ate better that week than I've eaten in my whole life because <laughs> she had worked in the prisons for many years and she just knew how to make the food really tasty yeah. and everything so fresh because they go twice a day to the market every day. And we got papayas and naranjas and all these exotic fruits that yeah. we can't get here. Well, uh, this sort of trip is still um, an option for other students um, for subsequent years, right? Yes, definitely. So the trip, uh, it's still, uh, so they do two trips uh, in December if there's enough interest, and there's another uh, trip in July. So uh, I would encourage people to please go on to this experience. It's definitely something that I'm going to remember for uh, for quite a while. Um, So I first decided to get involved because I wanted to sort of, you know, do something that I hadn't done before and sort of get out of my comfort zone. Um, but it, it's definitely something that, that I, I'm glad that I did. So uh, there's a web, there is an, an email for people who are interested. Um, and this is through the Upstate Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. Right. So people could find more information Christina there. Christina Lupone is in charge. Yeah. Okay. Well, good to know. And I want to say that the pleasure as an attending, I've worked here at Upstate for 26 years. Uh of seeing the medical students from the beginning to the end and what their progress was really touched me very much. So when I started out with Moje in the beginning, he was a little nervous, not really sure of himself. And then the last day he was presenting a patient to me. And when he finished, we just sort of looked at each other and said, wow, you did it. And I think that was a great moment for both of us for different reasons, but I, I was really proud of you there. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming in and sharing uh, your experience with the listeners for HealthLink on Air. My guests have been Dr. Barbara Feuerstein and medical student Moje Amarawan. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Geraldine Pinto, Ph.D., is an associate professor and head of the English department at St. Agnes College in Mangalore, India. She's won several short story competitions, but she sent us a poem that describes the cycle of life from a unique perspective. Here is A Study in Blue and Black. In the clarity of death, cells twitch, a slow sucking inwards, crumple-walled, cytoplasm hardens, blood caught mid-flow gems into iolite, then darkens into deepest sapphire, Neurons cease to fire. Bursts of animal electricity pale into lavender, which is neither pink nor blue. Gusts of amethyst clouds settle their shadows on skin, lips, and nails, while life shuffles out on slow blue gouts. Then formalin lulls indigo into licorice black, and young anatomists peel away jet skin to expose the catacombs of webbed muscle and salted bones and ink examination papers, making new life out of old deaths. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, handling sensitive issues during a visit to the pediatrician. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <music>